We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. If you have the app, uh, the app does have the Bible in it. That's one of the things that we are making sure we build in, but it's not going to turn itself already to Ephesians 4 yet. We're still working on some of the things that are just make it easier. But inside that, we want to provide the notes for you. So the notes that are up on the screen today, those are in the section on the app says notes. You can also take notes inside the ESV, just like Pastor Joey was saying. And so really what we're trying to build is an app that really everything you need while you come to church and then as you go to community group or youth group or whatever you're doing, that it's kind of all built in there. And so Ephesians 4 is where we're going to be today. And we're taking the month of April to really just talk about what, would, what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of a church. And so body of Christ, remember, all that. So just really what we're saying is, as a follower of Jesus here at, at Generations Church, what does it look like to participate in the life of the church? And so we're asking those questions. Last week we talked about attendance, coming to church on Sundays, that being here all the time or more often than not is incredibly important. And we, we talked about not just important for you, but important for me, important for us, as I'm better when you're here and that we serve one another in that capacity that, that you bring something to the church that I don't have and I bring something to the church maybe that you don't have and together we're better. And so typically when we talk about really what our goals for people are as a, as a church, that we ask each person that they would attend on Sundays, belong to a community group, serve somewhere, give financially, and live a missional life. So in other words, live out the idea that we exist to take God to the world, right? That we, we exist to be witnesses of Jesus to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, to our friends, to our family. And so as we looked at worship, as we looked at the, Saturday, the Sunday gathering last week, Today, I just want to press into what community groups look like. And so if you're a note taker, main idea, and again, this is in your app, is that Jesus calls us to live in true community with one another as a response to the gospel. This is what belonging to community groups is all about, are all about. This is what belonging to a community group is all about. Yeah, is all about, right? Brandon, you help me edit my book? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you. All right. So I am not a grammarian, so good thing I don't speak for a living or anything, right? So that's good. The idea is that Jesus calls us into true community. What I mean by true community is that you need to get outside of your biological family, that you need to get inside the family of Christ. And the reason for that is that we need one another, right? And, and I know that my best growth comes within a small community. And as a church, I know in Southern California, we feel like a small church, but the national average really is churches are all under 100, most churches in the world. So we're actually in the top 40% of churches as far as numbers go, right? Most churches across the country are little groups of 25, 30, 35, 50 starts getting to where they start breaking down, uh, the numbers start breaking down. But imagine, just imagine there was only 50 people in this room. How well could you know all 50 people? Right, how deeply could you get to know 49 other people? And so as soon as you double that or triple that or do whatever you're doing, as soon as you get there, we just can't know everyone. And so really what we do is we follow the early church model, right? We didn't create it. We're just reading along in scripture. We follow the early church model of gathering together corporately. We gather for worship. We gather for confession. We gather for prayer. We gather for the sacraments. We gather for the word. Just all those things we talked about last week. If you'd like to hear more about that, our, our message from last week is posted all over YouTube and our website and everywhere else. 
But as we, as we do that, then we take throughout the week and we gather in smaller communities. Communities where we can actually get to know one another, where we can get past the, hey, how's it going? You're like, great, how are you doing? When everything's dying inside, right? And so community groups, that's our name for how we gather in smaller, in smaller groups throughout the week. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll open up Ephesians 4, and we will pray that Jesus speaks to us. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. As we have just celebrated throughout Easter, and uh, we know you're alive. That's what we gather around every week. And Jesus, we don't need to wait for Easter Sunday to celebrate your living God. And we sing songs of worship to you. We pray prayers to you. And in this moment, Jesus, we ask that you, the word of God that became flesh, that you would now speak. Jesus, may you speak to us. We're your church. We're, we're one gathering who calls you our king. And we ask that you would speak to us. We need you. I pray that I would fade somewhere to the background and that, Jesus, you would speak. We need your, your words. Your words are life. And we need life in these challenging times that we live in. And so, Jesus, please speak. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are humble that will be transformed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick up right in verse 1. It says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, again, we're walking in late in the book. I know that we're only doing this through, the, through April. We normally teach through whole books of the Bible. We'll be starting the beginning of May. We're starting the book of Acts. And so right now, we're just looking really at one, just what are the values here in the church. So we're jumping into Ephesians right about the middle, right at the start of the second half of Ephesians. Paul, the author of Ephesians, is writing to the church in Ephesus, a church he began, a church that he pastored for several years, and a church that he loves deeply. But Paul now has been taken captive. He's been jailed for the gospel. When Christianity hit the first century landscape, it was illegal. It was, it was counter to what was legal. And so it's, in short form, it's just this. The Roman nation or the Roman empire had a plurality of gods. They were, they were polytheistic. And you were allowed to have functionally any relationship or any faith or any structure that you wanted as long as you also worshipped Caesar, right? So you clearly had to be polytheistic. And so as Judaism comes along and it is monotheistic, they come under this umbrella as they're taken captive, and now they're really second-class citizens in the empire of Rome, and they're really frowned upon, honestly, because they believe in one God. Well, then Jesus comes in, and Jesus gives his life. He, he goes and lives there. He runs into problems with even the Jewish religious leadership, the Roman authority, and he calls people to focus on the one God and nothing else. And those that were Jewish that were kind of going along to get along, if you will, that they were just kind of doing, that they were living under that banner. And Jesus says, but we can't. Like, there is one God. And he begins to point not only to himself, but to point to one true God. And he calls people to deny anything other than one true God. And then as Jesus lives his life and then gives his life as a sacrifice for us and then is buried in a grave and resurrected from the grave... Again, people begin to flock to this message. There's a living Jesus. There's someone who lived and died and rose again and is alive now forever. Now, that's a compelling message. And as we get into the book of Acts, you'll find that the gospel proclaimed in Acts is far different than the gospel we often hear today. It's not a whole lot about just forgiveness and eternity. It's about there is a living Jesus. 
Now imagine you're in the first century. Imagine this has taken place in your lifetime and a man was crucified and buried and three days later resurrected from a grave and then showed himself to hundreds of people who are now taking this message of a living Jesus to the masses. This message breaks out on the first century landscape and one of those who comes to faith is a man named Paul who used to be a persecutor of Christians who had authority to go and to take Christians and arrest them and beat them and in some cases even execute them. We'll see that in Acts. Is converted by Jesus. He becomes the number one proponent of Christianity in the first century, planting churches, spreading the message of the gospel. And so now he's writing to one of these churches that he began, to this church that he loves deeply, that he spent just a few years, just a short time with, but loves them. And he's saying, listen now, I am a prisoner for the gospel. So what this does for us is it reminds us that no matter where we are in life, no matter what place we are in life, no matter how tough things can be, we're not in prison for our, our faith. Right? We're not locked up for our faith. We're not imprisoned because we're Christians. So Paul is writing this not to ask for sympathy. He says, but I, Paul, a prisoner for the gospel, a prisoner for Jesus. And what that just always reminds me of is no matter where I am, no matter how hard things are, no matter what seems to be just clamping down on my life, it could be worse, right? And, and listen, if, if you're here today, I just did uh, a funeral last night for some members of the church, some people that I love deeply. And that doesn't mean, right, that you don't go through hard times that are uniquely challenging seasons, right? I think we'd all be... We'd all rather be in prison than lose a dear loved one. So hear me. As I say, all of us can hear this. Understand, I also understand there, there's, there's challenging times that we walk through, right? But for the rest of us, for those of us who just life is hard, it is hard, we agree with that. For those of us who are going through challenges and struggles, we hear that, we, we, we go through struggles, we are challenged. Understand that Paul takes away so, some of those excuses, really, for us not to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. So let me just read that for you one more time. It says, therefore, a prisoner for the, uh, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, walk is going to be a metaphor. It's just like when we learn to walk as children, as we learn to walk, we're maturing, right? We start out an infant and we can't walk. We then begin to crawl and everybody celebrates when we roll over and roll back over and then we crawl a little bit. Parents are now Facebooking pictures all over social media, right? And then what's that next big marker? First step, Right? Now that's when you have to childproof all your cabinets and that's, right? You gotta put away the things that are poisonous. You gotta make sure, because now they're mobile, right? And I don't know how, when they take their first step, second step, third step, I don't know how they get faster than you. But it's a sign of maturity, right? And so the Bible uses this idea of walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of who you've been called to. So walking is this metaphor of maturing in our faith. Ephesians says this earlier, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, before you were dead in the trespasses and the sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, now we are his workmanship, that's verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So this walking metaphor, you used to walk in the ways of the world, you used to live like everybody else, you used to live apart from God, and you walked that way. 
You were going that way. And now, now that you're in Christ, you're called to walk in a different way. In fact, it adds that you should walk in the things that God has prepared for you to do. So this walking is a metaphor. And so here's what Paul's saying. I'm a prisoner for the sake of my faith. And here's what I, I, I want to urge you. I want to plead with you that you would walk in a manner, that you would mature in a way that Jesus has called you to. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's, there's three phrases in there that, that Paul is calling us to. And I just want to read them to you and I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you what all these things have in common. I want you to hear this. What do bearing with one another in love, being eager to maintain unity, and having a bond of peace, what do all those things have in common with each other? It's not fair. For those of you who don't know, Pastor Vinny is a good friend of mine and a really close friend of mine. He's here today. I'm glad. And he's right. He got the right answer. So good discipleship. I'm just saying right here, right? It requires other people, right? You can't really work on peace and unity and humility when no one else around, right? So Paul is calling us to something, showing us, by the way, if I ask any more questions, you're not allowed, all right? Everybody else in the row is fine, you out. Okay, so every, we, we are called to something that requires other people. See, our faith, there's this concept, and it's been around for the last probably 40 years, there's this idea that my faith is personal, my faith is my own, and really, if I just want to be a Christian, if I want to be a follower of God, follower of Jesus, I can take my Bible, and I can be all on my own, I can live, I don't have to have a community of believers around me, it's my personal faith. We've even termed Jesus my personal Savior, which you'd be really incredibly hard-pressed to find in the Bible. Savior of the world, you might find but we were never designed to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus. I don't even use the term Christian when it's been so watered down. To be followers of Jesus, we were designed to be in community. That there is no way we can truly live out and mature and grow in our faith without true and deep community. If you're a note taker, here's another one. Living in community requires that we are in deep enough relationships with others in the church that issues like unity and peace are challenged. Now listen, I, I was thinking about this on the way to church. Lisa and I were driving in. And I was just thinking about this. I was just thinking through the message. And listen, it's not enough that we're Christians at home. Right? And, and let's just be honest. If you're married, this is just an easy one. Right? Last person we want to be our teacher sometimes is our spouse. Right? My wife and I learned early on, that I will go hear something from another man that she's been telling me for a year, and I'm like, oh, I've got this great idea. Guess what so-and-so told me, right? Because I'm not always listening my best, right? We need community. We need, I need other men around me, other women around me. We need community around us. We can't live this out. We can't truly strive for unity when all I've got to be unified with is the bride I chose, right, or the, or the kids you bore, or, or, you know, whatever, the family that you're, you're, you're in. Like, that doesn't really count. You've got to get around some other crazy people because you're crazy too, right? And we're all crazy and flawed and broken and sinful and selfish, and the list is so big, but you get my point, right? 
that you've got to be around other people in order to mature in your faith because they will not only speak into your life, but they'll bring some things out of you. And they need you because you will bring some things out of them and you will speak into them. But we need one another. And this idea that all we got to do is show up on Sunday and then go, hey, I serve and write a check. I'm good. Don't stop those things just saying, right, that we need one another. Giving is how the church exists. Serving is how the church exists. But we need one another. To mature in our faith, to continue in this walk, we need people around us to speak into our lives, to draw even negative things out. They'll draw our selfishness out. They'll challenge our beliefs. We'll challenge theirs. But we need this. We need one another. Back in Ephesians, starting in verse 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father for all of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So how many do you think we're supposed to be? That, that, wasn't, I, that wasn't a trick. One. It said one. Like how many times? That was, sorry, that was supposed to be an easy question. All right, so we're called to be one. Like there's one body, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. There's one, there's one church. And I get it. There's lots of different addresses of people that are worshiping and lots of different beliefs inside those different gatherings. But we're called to be unified. So at bare minimum, we're called to be one with those in this room. And then we're to strive to figure out how to be one with the church down the street as well. But when God has called us to a local body, a local expression of the one church, as God has called us to this, we are called to be one. That means we celebrate when people are celebrating, we mourn when people are mourning. When people are in need, we care for them. When we're in need, we allow others to care for us. Like that we are to be one. Just as I have one body, many parts, like 1 Corinthians 11 says, we have eyes and feet and hands, and none of us are willing to say, well, you know, I've got two eyes, I've got two hands, but I could probably do it with just one hand, right? That's not a thing, right? That we need everything we've got. We need all of us, that all of us are different, that each body part has a different function, and all of it collectively, collectively together is how I want my body to remain. And that's what God is using this metaphor in Corinthians to say is that you're one body. Same author in Ephesians is saying this, we're one Lord, one baptism, one church, one body, one faith. Like we're called to have this synergy and unity. That the folks in this room are put here, that God has designed it so that we would mature and grow and strengthen and care for and love one another. So we are to be one. For those of you that are note takers, we can no longer see ourselves as separated by generations ethnicities, socioeconomics, or any other barrier. We are called beyond our own comfort to develop true relationships with one another. I had a great conversation this week. Um, it was spurred out of a, something we're sitting in on Tuesday, long story short, and then you fast forward, and I had this conversation with a couple different people. They just randomly came up. I didn't bring it up, so I felt like they randomly came up in my life at least. And we were talking about diversity in the church. And there's really not one normal, there's not one dominant ethnicity, right? We are divided. In fact, if you do the demographics of our city or our surrounding area, we are actually more diverse 
than our actual city, if that makes sense. So our city is primarily white, second is, is, uh, second is different ethnicities of Asians, and then it, and it works itself out there, Hispanic, and it just kind of works this thing. We're actually more diverse than the city demographics. And here's how we got there. We just weren't thinking about it, to be honest with you. We had the strategy of love your neighbor. I mean, I know that's highly technical, but love your neighbor. We heard that in the Bible somewhere and just said, oh, that's a good idea. We should do that, right? As you love your neighbor, you begin to look at your city. I was talking to somebody, I said, our number one growing demographic right now, for whatever reason, is young, like millennial age Asians of different ethnic groups and Asians. That's what we're, I don't know how we're growing in that. I didn't ask for it. We're not proud of God. Please bring us more Asian people. I mean, it would raise our math scores, but we weren't aiming at that at all, right? I mean, like, that's, we weren't doing that. But what we were doing really well was loving our neighbor and serving in our community, and our, and our church began to look like our community. And I was just talking to someone, and we were just talking about this. I was sitting in my staff meeting last week, and I was the only white guy in the room. I didn't hire him because of that. That had nothing to do with anything. But as we're working through his things, I'm thinking, okay, this is, God has done something amazing here. And, and we don't, we always feel like one. It doesn't matter how old or or what color, or, or what, what your first language you spoke was, or whether your income bracket is here or here, it doesn't matter. That we've just transcended that. I remember about four years ago, I remember just sitting in our elders meeting, we're having dinner with our elders and their spouses, and, and our, our elders and their wives, and we we're sitting around dinner, and I realized that most of them didn't marry somebody of the same ethnicity. They just didn't. That I had more mixed marriages than just one mono-ethnic relationship. And so our church imitates or, or emulates or brings out this difference, this, this distinct thing that the church is called to be, that we're called to be one, that we're called to be unified, but we're not all called to be like each other. In fact, we're all called to be different that we might mature one another, that we would have different kind of lifestyles, that you might have businessmen and bikers and single moms and retired people, I just, I mean, like all over the spectrum. And that this is the one place where really none of that should ever matter. If you're in those generations, if you're older, you should learn from folks that are younger. If you're younger, you should respect and learn from those who are older. That we have something unique here that God has designed, that he's put us together, and it's for our good. That God has called us to be unified, to be one. Verse 7 says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So I, we're called to be one, but I want you to hear this. Let me put it on the screen for you first. Individual gifts. Christians are uniquely gifted by Jesus as individuals to strengthen the local church corporately. So not only are we diverse in age or socioeconomic status, ethnicity, whatever it is. So not only are we diverse in that, but we're also very diverse in our gifts right? Where one may be really strong, another may be really weak. And because of that, God has called us all together. So now you might even be related, married, same color, same age, same whatever, and have entirely different gifts. And so even down that, you have a church that is highly diverse. And that we are created this way, designed this way by Jesus, our senior pastor, right? That Jesus has called us to be one. That you would encourage and, and, and grow me, that I would encourage and grow you, and that God has created us this way. Verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a, coast, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, 
What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. I know a lot of people get confused by those two verses in there and trying to figure out the ascended and descended. And I know that some older translations did some, some linguistic changes that don't make sense in our context. But if you're reading any modern Bible, it sounds pretty current to that one. As you know, language changes over time. Words change over time. Um, and this is just a really, it shouldn't be confusing at all. But what it's saying is about Jesus that by proclaiming that Jesus ascended, we're also saying he descended. So in other words, by saying that Jesus, when he rose from, this, rose from the dead, showed the hundreds of people that he was alive, spent those weeks on earth doing nothing but proclaiming he's alive, really alive. He ascended back to heaven. He went back to his throne on he in heaven where he belongs. And so what Paul is saying is saying, listen, we proclaim that. Remember that we're also pro proclaiming the beginning of the gospel as well. And so the gospel is this, that God created you and I, that God loves you and I, that he designed us, that he loves us, that he gave us a way to live. And, and if generations, if you're, if you're our guest here or if you're newer here, the way we just kind of short form how we were designed to live is we were called to worship God. That's just short form. We were called to give glory, that we were created, designed to worship God. And as sin enters in the story, human history is separated from God. As sin enters, we all become separate from God. It's like taking a marriage and having an infidelity, and there's that brokenness that separates the marriage. Well, that infidelity to God had separated humanity and God. So God says this, I, I love them too much. I can't keep this divorce, if you will. I can't keep this separation. Instead, I love them. I want to redeem. I, wanna, I want to restore this relationship. And so what God does is says, I will enter into their story. So Jesus descends to earth. So Jesus humbles himself and becomes flesh. So Jesus comes down from heaven. Now understand, heaven's not necessarily above us, right? That's kind of more metaphoric, above, below. But we're saying that Jesus came down from his throne in heaven. He put on flesh to become human, fully God, yet fully human. And Jesus entered this world as a child, right? The very thing we celebrate at Christmas that Jesus enters into our story in flesh. That it becomes a child, that he is raised just like all of us, that he endures all the things that we have to endure, with the one exception that Jesus does it flawlessly. That God himself enters into the flesh and lives the life we were called to live that we have all fall, fail, failed and fallen short of. That, all, that we have all been called to live just as Jesus did, but we have all fallen short of that. So Jesus enters in, Jesus does so, and then trades his perfect life on the cross for ours. So as Jesus trades himself on the cross, he dies for our sins, he pays the penalty for our flaws and our brokenness, and he begins to redeem us. As Jesus is laid in the grave and resurrects three days later, Jesus brings new life. And so one of the things that we often talk about here is that you're not just forgiven like you're still in the grave, but just forgiven, but that Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life, that you're made new. That wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, whatever it is that's going on in your life, whatever pains and burdens or struggles you bear, that when Jesus rose from the grave, that was to overcome those things. And that as Jesus now, who once descended to humanity, or condescended to humanity, now ascends back to heaven because of a job well done and pours out of his spirit into all of us. 
just as we talked about on Easter Sunday, we talked about baptisms. When, when, the first, when that first time that Peter goes out after the ascension of Jesus and he, he preaches this gospel to these, these Jews celebrating a feast and he goes out and he proclaims the gospel to them, many of them, thousands of them call out to him and say, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so as Jesus ascends, not only has he offered us new life, but now he's empowered us for that new life through his spirit. And so maybe that's a lot to take in. Maybe that's a lot to hear if you're unfamiliar with the gospel. But here's what I want you to hear. This passage, a lot of people are struggling through like, what's this ascended, descended thing? It's just talking about Jesus leaving heaven, entering into our story. That he could come and do all that is necessary to change us. To transform us, to rescue us, to redeem us that he has done all that is needed. He's done all the hard work. And that as he completed that job, he ascended back to heaven where he deserves to be. So Paul is saying this. Now, Jesus did all this for you. Now let's live in a manner worthy of that. Let's walk in a way that he has called us to walk. So verse 11, he says, and he gave the apostles, so he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, not terms we use all the time, and in fact, most of the times we use these in church, we do them a little bit oddly. So I'm going to put these on the screen, kind of explain them real quick, and then we're going to read that passage again. Apostles really literally translates as sent ones, ones who are sent. That's what apostle means. But really, those, those are the initiators of new ministries often. Prophets speak out. They tend to speak God's words with God's authority and tend to advocate for justice and holiness, right? Evangelists are spreaders of the gospel. They are influencers, right? They take the gospel into new areas. Shepherds strengthen the church. They include others in the church by strengthening them. And teachers shape lives. They inform, really, how God has called us to live. Inform us about how the gospel applies to us in an unending amount of circumstances. So with those on the screen still, let me just read this to you. And he, meaning Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So why were all those different gift sets given to leaders and given to the church? Anybody but Vinny is allowed to answer this one. A little bit louder? To equip the church, to equip the saints, right? Saints are not people that have died and gone on to heaven. The saints, the people at the church, right? Those who have been, who have been rescued by Jesus, those who are in Christ are called saints. Those, it just means like set apart ones. That's all that really means, right? To equip the church for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So again, the gifts given to all of us are to build one another up. And there's more than these five, but these are the five things that God really used that Jesus really used to promulgate the first century church when it started from non-existent to really taking the world by storm in the first 200, 300 years. And it was really by those who would initiate new things, who would start works of ministry, those who would speak into culture and call people to God's best for them and call out for justice. Those who would take the gospel to people who had never heard it and, 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 and lead them to Christ, to that kind of faith. Shepherds that would care and strengthen, and teachers that would continue that work of embedding the gospel in the body of Christ. And so we're called again to one another. Verse 13, 
until we, now listen to this word we is going to come up a lot, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we, we are called to maturity. We are called to fullness. So all this, all this talk about unity, all this talk about community, all this stuff bringing together to say this, this is how God has designed it. This is how Jesus birthed his church. This is how he created it, that we might grow, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been given. And, and, and please hear this. It is not just leaders that you see that work for churches or something that have been given callings. Like, we are all called to the ministry. We are all called to join Jesus in his mission. And all our callings may look different, but for the most part, they have a similar mission that we are called to tell others about Jesus. And I don't mean standing on a street corner with a megaphone, or, or I just mean living ways that offer us opportunities to tell other people about the very thing that we find most dear in our lives, the very thing that has rescued us, that we would tell others about Jesus. As he commissions the church in Acts, he says, listen, you remain here until my spirit comes upon you, and then you'll become my witnesses. You will tell others, in other words, about me. So the maturity of the church comes out of all these gift sets. We cannot attain the maturity of faith or the fullness of Christ without becoming deeply interconnected to one another. Our faith is designed to be matured in relationship with one another. We are designed to be around others in the church to grow one another. People that have been walking with Jesus for decades, people that have been walking with Jesus for minutes, people younger, people older, people different, people similar, that we're called into this kind of community. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, meaning Jesus, into Christ. It talks about us being together that we might not be misled about the gospel, that we might not be misled about Jesus. And, and just clearly we say this, there are times where you, you one church that believe something different than another church. And I would say this, there's more in common than there is that, that divides. And, I, and for whatever reason, I, I understand, but I wish it weren't so, but the church has chosen to divide many times over the last couple thousand years. Definitely not how Jesus called us to be. And I get that there are some irreconcilable differences in many areas. But I will say this, that we have more in common than we have that are uncommon. And then oftentimes you'll see these divisions, but, but that we are to be together. And maybe even these different views and these different things are there to strengthen us to understand the gospel better. That we would drive that deeper into our lives. And so as it talks about being deceived or others, being together, as we're saying, is we're stronger together. We're better in community. Proverbs 27 says this, Oh, I'm one verse ahead of myself. No, that's right. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So speaking the truth in love, as we gather together, we just speak to one another. We were just in Proverbs, and I thought this was timely. Faithful are the words of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The way we grow are the words of a friend, right? Even when those friends are pressing into us and calling us to something different, that, that we, just, we just had that verse in Proverbs as we went through it, and I just... I wanted to read that again. That Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So when a friend speaks to you, and maybe it hurts a little bit because they're calling you to something better, they're calling you to what God has for you. 
that better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Ah, oh, we love Proverbs, right? Pithy little truisms that just right to our heart. But you can't, that's not going to happen if people don't know one another. There's no way you can speak into my life unless we get to know one another. Verse 16, from the whole body, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. At the benefit of teaching this book last year, we went through the whole book of Ephesians. And when I got to this passage, I used a metaphor that had happened, I think, the day prior or two days prior, whatever it was, it was earlier that week. And it was me and some friends that started to go out and we'd go out off-roading. We'd take our Jeeps out and bounce around in the dirt, which is a nice, nice way to get out of the office for a while, right? And as we were doing that, there are some challenging places off-roads. And the way that we would do those is really teamwork. So multiple Jeeps, multiple people, fortunately two-way radios. And we would talk to each other. And as you navigate up gaps and rocks and holes and, and, and gullies, things that you navigate up or sand or whatever, it's teamwork, and it takes teamwork for everybody to get up there, the most experienced or the most rookie. And the idea is, and most of if you do anything off-roading like motorcycling or, or Jeep or, you know, surfing or anything out in the wilderness where there's a risk or a part of danger, what are you never supposed to do? Do it alone, right? Why would we engage this world alone? Baffles me. But as a team, I had people who could see things I couldn't see. Hey, turn this way. There's a rock right there. Hey, you need to actually drive over the rock. You need to avoid the rock, whatever you have to do. But there are things I can't see, and that's what community is. It's, it's being able to see things we can't see. It's you being able to see things in my life that are, that are detrimental to me that maybe I can't see. But again, and we have to beat that drum. There's, there's no way that that's possible unless we get to know one another. Verse 17, now this I say, Paul says, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated in the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When he talks about as the Gentiles do in this context, it's doing whatever they want to do. It's the exact opposite of following Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Allowing him to be king and him to set the rules and allowing him to be Lord that we would follow. Also in Proverbs, as we were just reading this, Proverbs 15 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Right? That we are, to, we are called to be in that kind of community, deciphering kind of, okay, what is Jesus calling us to? Like, what are we doing? What, how are we going there? How are we doing this and having others to help us answer those questions? Verse 20, it says, that, that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. The truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is a popular verse. Put off the old self, put on the new self, right? Lots of people have talked about that. And, and in a different context, we'd probably unpack that more. But I want you to hear this, that a lot of times this is taken as something that we do on our own. Like somehow, silently, in our quiet time with God, God is revealing things that are wrong, and we're supposed to put those things off and put on new things. But notice in the middle of it that there's this phrase that says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And yes, that can absolutely happen in your time spent alone with God. But it more often gets played out into your lives in community. What we do is we get to challenge what's normal for us. 
And so we've got this having a small group of committed followers of Jesus learning together who know each other well challenges and grows our faith. Let me wrap up with this verse right here. It says this. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he winds all these things up, reminding us that we are, we are members with one another. And yes, neighbor could mean your next door neighbor, or it could be the person you encounter. Jesus tells a parable where it's just the people you encounter. But in this context, it's this person, the people sitting next to you, that we would embrace this as the community of faith Jesus has developed. Now, let me just say this again. This is how the church has always done it. But each generation comes by with their individualistic ideas and draws away from it. But let me back up, give you two passages. Acts is the first one. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Every day from temple or corporate gathering to house to house, smaller groups, they continued on their faith. The next one. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews is dealing with the very thing we're talking about. There are people that are giving up gathering regularly, and they're getting pulled away from that. And so even as the author of Hebrews writes into the first century, we already see this struggle. And so what we're doing is the same thing as, we, as the church has always done, is calling people back. Last slide. Community groups are our way of growing in community. We start up again in May and hope to get every person into a group so we can all grow together. Here's a lofty idea. I'd love everyone in a small group. I'd love everyone to be in a community group. And here's what's great about that. Is I need you, and you need the person next to you, and they need a person across the room, and we need one another. And if we're all going to grow up, and if we're going to mature in our faith, then we need to get to know one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You called us to be your body, where the church is called the body of Christ over and over again in Scripture. And just like we would readily admit, I don't want to do the rest of my life with only one arm or one hand or one leg. I would never choose to only use one eye. In other words, Jesus, we all need to be your body. We all are gifted. You have given us all individual gifts to use corporately. And we are better together that we are best and that we are, more, we are more like you when we live in community. And Jesus, you modeled this. You gathered 12 disciples and you did life with them for three years, equipping them to take this to the first century. And then as you ascended, you poured out your spirit on them that they could accomplish what you'd called them to. Jesus, help us Pour out your spirit on us. Help us accomplish what you've called us to do.